Our text for this morning is Matthew 22, verses 15 through 33, and this is God's word for us today. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, therefore, render, render, let me say that again. He said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, They were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together. Lord God, I would ask you that this morning you do the mighty work that only you can do to bring us to a place where we glorify you, honor you, where we please you. I pray that you will work in this text to give us reasons for hope, reasons for joy, reasons for worship. And I pray that you'll work in this text to change our lives, that we might better please you. God, let this not be an ordinary day. Let this be a day when we can leave this place saying it was good to be in the presence of our holy God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You ever been asked a trick question? Somebody will come up to you and they'll think they can somehow make you look foolish by, ma- by asking you a question that really feels unanswerable. And trick questions come in all shapes and sizes. The tricks have all sorts of different motives behind them. But when it comes to the issues of the faith, most often the trick question that you're going to be asked is going to be designed to make your faith look foolish. 
Someone might come up to you and ask, I don't know if they still do this one or not, but someone might say, well, is God powerful enough to create a boulder that not even he could lift? Ooh. I mean, if you say, yes, God's powerful enough, then you assume that a boulder could exist that God could not lift. That would deny God's power. But if you say, no, God's not powerful enough, then it seems like you said that God lacks the power to do something. And again, you feel like you deny his power. And what do you do? And it requires a bit of wisdom and it requires a little bit of confidence to look the person who asks that kind of question of you in the eye and say to them, that is a nonsense question. You're asking me if God can create something that by definition cannot exist. Your question is dishonest. Your question is flawed from the beginning. Now you might find it obnoxious if somebody tries to ask you a trick question to make you look like a fool. But let me ask you this. Could you imagine having the audacity to try to ask a trick question of the Son of God? Well, in today's passage, not only do we see it happen, for good measure, we see it happen twice. There'll be one next week, just so you know. Our passage for today finds us in the city of Jerusalem in the middle of the Passion Week. Jesus is just a couple of days from being arrested and voluntarily walking to the cross to pay the price for the sins of God's people. And part of the process is going to be the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that's going to send those men over the edge and it's going to spark in those men, well, a murderous rage against the Lord himself. They're going to want to kill Jesus for all this. Now, according to most of the accounts that you would read, what we're looking at here occurs on Tuesday in the Passion Week. Some people shape the days a little bit differently. Earlier today, Jesus has shown that the Jewish leaders are dishonest in the way that they ask him questions. They want to know whose authority he works under. He says, if you'll answer one honest question from me, I'll answer your questions. They won't do it. Then Jesus gave us three parables in which he showed the unfaithfulness of Israel as a nation to the Lord, even as each parable got more and more intense. And you can imagine, friends, if you're thinking about this, that the, the religious power men, the, the people that really thought they knew what was going on, the people that ran the world, they were seething at this point. So we're going to look this morning at two questions that were posed to the Savior, and both of them are tricks. But in case you're worried, don't be worried. Jesus is not going to be fooled. We're going to see these two questions and uh, we'll find about seven short points in there. Hopefully they'll help us worship the Lord and obey his commands. So our first question comes in 15 through 17. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we, we know that you're true. And teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Pharisees. They're one of the groups of religious leaders in Israel. And they're upset by what Jesus has taught in those three parables we just looked at. So they're plotting and they're scheming a way to try to make Jesus look foolish or to get in trouble. And they came up with a plan. The Pharisees send their disciples and a group of Herodians to Jesus with a question. 
Now, this is fascinating at the very beginning because the Pharisees don't come themselves. The main men don't show up here. They send their disciples. Maybe they think Jesus will assume that these younger guys, oh, they're just innocent. They just really want to know what Jesus thinks. They're big fans, big fans of Jesus. And it's also interesting here that the Pharisees are teaming up with a group called the Herodians. These are people who are connected to King Herod. Do you guys remember King Herod? King Herod's the wicked king over Galilee. He's the man who had John the Baptist murdered. It was his dad that had the innocents in Bethlehem slaughtered. Usually, the Pharisees would be opposed to anybody connected to the Roman government. But here, the Pharisees are willing to use the Herodians, the people tied to the government, because they want to try to send Jesus to join John the Baptist in the grave. And then verse 16 comes, and you you can hear all that just slimy false flattery, can't you? They don't think about Jesus as a good teacher. They don't think he's faithful. They don't care about him. But they want him to think they're big fans. They emphasize especially, now we know Jesus. You're not swayed by anybody's status. That, of course, is them trying to lead Jesus down a path where he'll speak out against the government. And if he speaks out against the government, he'll get in trouble. And then comes the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I got to hand it to them, guys. That's a good trick question. They think they've got Jesus. How? Think about this. If Jesus looks them in the eye, well, of course we should pay taxes. Well, then the Pharisees can spin it so that Jesus looks pro-Rome, anti-Israel. He's going to lose followers in that. But if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, then the Herodians here, And then they go tell King Herod, and Jesus may be arrested, even as an insurrectionist. Isn't that clever? Well, verse 18, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So Jesus' answer here is glorious. Look what he does first. Verse 18, Jesus is not fooled by this group. He sees their I heart the Pharisees t-shirts or whatever they're wearing. He knows they're lying about being big fans of him and his teaching. He knows they don't care about him, whether he follows political parties or not. He knows these are malicious hypocrites. They're pretending to be something that they're not, and they're doing it with bad motives. And then Jesus says, okay, guys, show me a coin. And they're happy to produce. They they hand Jesus a denarius, a little silver coin that was a common day's wages. Now, if this was a normal coin, right there in the temple courtyard, by the way, right there where no images are supposed to be, this coin would have a picture of Tiberius Caesar's face on one side 
and a picture of him enthroned on the other side. And it would have an inscription praising Tiberius Caesar as Divus et Pontimus Maximus, God and High Priest. How offensive you think it was, by the way, to the Pharisees to pay their taxes with a coin, with the image of a man claiming to be God and high priest on the other. You'd think it should be offensive, right? Well, Jesus points out the likeness and he points out the inscription and he asks, hey guys, who's this? Whose are these? They know it's Caesar's. They say it's Tiberius or whichever Caesar's picture is on there. I assume it's Tiberius. And then Jesus answers these guys with absolutely pure biblical genius. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that shuts them up. And it sends them off. You picture this group scratching their heads and muttering to themselves as they walk away, right? They are astonished at the wisdom of Jesus. Well, let's learn a couple things from this answer that Jesus gives to their trick question. First point, if you're taking points down. Praise Jesus for his perfect wisdom. Praise Jesus for his perfect wisdom. I mean, with this question and the next, this point could be anywhere. You and I are supposed to see the glorious wisdom of the Lord Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He teaches the word of God with authority. And no cluster of scholarly critics is going to somehow catch Jesus off guard and make him fail. No, no, no. Our Lord is infinitely wise. And I think it would be good for you to remember this whenever you hear people out there raising questions and objections against the faith. Guys, there's no question or objection to the faith that can't be answered. People have been trying this for nearly 2,000 years. You realize that, right? There's a reason that Christianity has never gone away, even though there have been attacks on the faith for two millennia. The Christian faith stands up under scrutiny. The faith is true. The Lord is wise. And the Lord is not going to be outsmarted by his own creation. So when you hear somebody pose a question that you can't answer, and by the way, if, if you're an honest Christian living in this world, I want to bet that it's happened to you at some point that somebody's raised a question that you don't know the answer to. Don't let that turn you away. Instead, do some sincere investigation. Speak to an elder in the church. Work with thoughtful believers who have some experience thinking about these things. Go to good sources of information and just find out how have other Christians answered this particular objection that's being thrown at me? No snarky co-worker, no arrogant college professor is coming up with a new objection to the faith. There aren't new objections to the faith. But if all you have as a source of knowledge is your own experience, if all you know is what you know and you don't know anything more than you know... You might be fooled into thinking that the questions are brilliant and the opposition to the faith, oh, it's too much. No one could ever get past this one. Friends, we praise Jesus here for his infinite wisdom and we need to be wise enough to trust that Jesus 
is smarter than the critics on social media or in our classrooms or in our office cubicles. Second point, after praising Jesus for his wisdom, submit to authorities under God. Submit to authorities under God. Just a lesson to learn from this point. In how Jesus answered the question thrown at him, we see that he teaches us that we're supposed to submit to authority under God. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give God what belongs to God. That is our job. Now, on the one hand here, Jesus is making it clear, you and I are supposed to submit to the government that God has allowed to be over us. We're even supposed to pay our taxes. Jesus does not give the Pharisees a loophole to accuse him of going against the government here. Now, is this the first time that we've ever seen somebody teach us to follow the government's rule? Not really, right? In Romans um, 13, uh, verse 1 reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Then verse 5 reads, um, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If the law tells you the land that you live in, the law of the land you live in tells you to pay taxes, we don't use the faith as an excuse to break the law. Paul wrote that command. And was Paul under a really great and just system? No, not really. He was in Rome. He was under the Roman Empire. The government was evil. The government was corrupt. The government was often anti-Christian. Paul still told Christians, pay your taxes. Give the respect leaders are supposed to have. We saw the same thing in our study of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, right? And we learned there that we submit to earthly authorities so long as the authorities do not demand that we violate the word of God. So we give Caesar the coins he demands of us. Now that's not to say, by the way, that we in our culture won't work for better laws. Of course we do, right? I mean, at least some do. We vote. At least you have the right to. You can participate in the political process, if that's your thing. If somebody asks us a question about better laws, we're happy to talk about better laws and just laws and better taxes and all the rest. But when a law is the law, and when the law does not command us to violate the word of God, we obey that law. Now, if that's all that Jesus said, pay your taxes, the Pharisees could have tried to spin this, right? They could have gone onto their own cable news network and just talked about, look at Jesus coming down on the side of Rome against the people of Israel. You know, it had been a great news bite. But Jesus is smarter than all of that. And point number three reminds us this. Yield all of yourself to your Lord since you bear his image. It's a long point. You can write it down. Yield all of yourself to your Lord 
since you bear his image. Jesus tells the people, give God what belongs to God. Think about this for a minute. The coin bore the image of Caesar. What bears the image of God? Every human being bears the image of God. You and I are marked by God in our very being. So maybe the coin can belong to Caesar, fine. But your life, your soul, your all is owed. Your all belongs to the God who made you. Yes, give Caesar his coin in obedience to the law, but give God every part of you. And that would be a hard one for the Pharisees or the Herodians to come back against, right? Jesus was not about law-breaking, but he said everything in its proper perspective. Caesar gets the money, fine, but Caesar is not the God his coin claims he is. You give Caesar your obedience as a citizen, but you give God your very soul. As you live in his world, as you live as a citizen of his kingdom, God gets your highest loyalty. Caesar can command you in the little things, but he has no right to your worship. God has the right to every single last bit of you. So you yield every last single bit of you to your Lord because he has stamped on your soul his very image. Now, wouldn't you think... If you watched Jesus handle this trick question, wouldn't you think that would put people off of trying to have a go at Jesus? Well, people aren't always that smart. So let's press on to the second question and we'll see another group take their best shot. Question two starts in verse 23, all the way down to 28 to start the the question. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Here comes another religious group. The Sadducees. I have the children's song in my head that talks about them not being happy because they were just sad, you see. You know, you remember that one? Anybody remember that one? The Pharisees were not fair, you see. Anyway, it's, it's wonderful. Now, the Sadducees are different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they're like the white-collar religious aristocracy. Pharisees are kind of blue-collar. Sadducees are white-collar. And the Sadducees loved their money. And they loved having a connection to the temple and the priesthood. And they loved holding hands with the government. And they were very concerned about keeping their political influence. And they really weren't concerned at all about the law of God. Why would we be hearing from the Sadducees? They really haven't been a big thorn in the side of Jesus so far. 
Well, on Monday, Jesus came into Jerusalem. Remember what he did in the temple with the tables? He turned over the tables. He drove out the money changers. In that moment, Jesus threatened to take away the Sadducees' golden goose. And like modern religious liberals, these guys want their money and they want their influence and they're not really interested in taking the scripture word for word seriously. So Matthew points out that one of the weird beliefs about, or from the Sadducees is that they deny the idea of the resurrection of the dead. They weren't into the concept of life after death. They didn't believe in angels, any of that other mystical stuff, right? They thought that the Bible, what they had, the scripture, they thought that the word of God, it just is to give you, well, I could say it this way, your best life now. Uh, it's for the here and now. It's not for anything after. Now, how in the world would that happen? Aren't there scriptures that speak directly to the idea of the resurrection of the dead? Didn't Job say, with my flesh, I will see God even if worms worms destroy my body? Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 reads, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Didn't that sound resurrection-y to you? See, one of the errors that the Sadducees made was to prioritize the first five books of the Old Testament above the other books. They developed what some people might call a canon within the canon. They took Genesis through Deuteronomy as scripture and they rejected anything they didn't like from the other books. And since the Sadducees were not bright enough to find the resurrection in Genesis through Deuteronomy, they just didn't accept that clear teaching like we read in Daniel or Job. Now, by the way, let me pause you for a second. You need to watch out, Christians, not to make that error yourself. You must not prioritize parts of the Bible in such a way as to let yourself ignore or reject other parts of the Bible. Because when Paul said scripture was God-breathed, which part of scripture did he say was God-breathed? All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is useful. All scripture is profitable. Now, I'll be honest with you. We may not find as much to help your daily life in the passages of the numbering of the 12 tribes of Israel as you do in the book of 1 Peter. Though there is glory in the numbers and there's glory in the sacrificial system and there's glory in Leviticus. You've got to see that. No, I'm willing to accept that you might find 1 Peter more applicable, Matthew more applicable to you. But listen, do not elevate the words of Jesus in the Gospels above the words of Peter and Paul in the epistles. All of those words are the word of God. So you can't say, well, if Jesus didn't talk about this issue, what Paul says about it doesn't matter. Some of your Bibles, how many of you have Bibles with, with the words of Jesus in red? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm not mad at you, so don't go, he just said my Bible's back. <laughs> but listen, that can be a distraction. If you think the red words are better, you're not correct. 
All of the words are the word of God. Now, if you know that, have your red letters all you want. That's great. But do not elevate one part above it. Don't, don't make a canon within a canon. You hurt yourself. Now, the trick question from the Sadducees was intended to try to make Jesus look foolish, especially to you know, the people that aren't going to be tempted to believe in resurrection and such. And the question is based on what's known as the leveret provision of the law, right? Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 tells us there's a provision for the protection of a family name and a a provision for the keeping of an inheritance within that family if a man marries a woman and then dies with no children, right? The man's brother would marry the widow and they would have children and the first child to be born would keep the name of his of the wife's first husband so keep the inheritance and the land all in the family in a nice even line. It was a provision in the law. We see that, by the way, happening in the book of Ruth when Boaz is the family's kinsman redeemer. The leveret provision is, is happening there. Well, the Sadducees, they think they're smart. They develop a hypothetical situation. They say there were seven brothers, and they all married the same woman. And each brother, he marries the woman, and he dies before he has any children. And then the next one marries her, and he dies before he has any children. And they're using a big number like seven because they want to make anything Jesus says about the resurrection look dumber and dumber and dumber. They're trying to be extreme to try to make Jesus look foolish. So they asked Jesus in the resurrection, which of these seven men is going to be the husband of this lady? And can't you just picture them smirking at each other like, yeah, I got him right here. They think they've hit Jesus with the theological drop the mic moment. He, he's going to look like a simpleton or he's going to actually deny life after death. And either way, we win, man. They think they have got it because they're mocking him for a belief in the miraculous that they don't believe in. Like I said, they think they've dropped the mic and shown Jesus as foolish. And here comes Jesus's answer. Jesus, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus looks these guys, these smug scholars in the eyes, and he says, you're just wrong. That's pretty direct, by the way. And he points out that they neither understand Scripture nor the power of God. He hit them right where they thought they knew everything. Verse 30, Jesus speaks authoritatively about the power of God. He talks about the resurrection. He tells them, your question is irrelevant because marriage is not a part of the resurrection life of the people of God. In the resurrection, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, first, recognize this. The doctrine of the resurrection of believers from the dead is a crucial biblical doctrine. 
You could read 1 Thessalonians 4, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, and you can see that Paul says to us, there's coming a day in the future when Jesus comes back, and when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring to life every one of the believers who has ever died. Now, the saints who have died before us, they are presently spiritually alive in the presence of God, but... When Jesus comes back, their bodies are going to come out of the grave and they're going to be transformed and they're going to get brand new resurrection bodies. And when Jesus returns and he raises these saints from the dead, they're going to begin a brand new sort of eternal life, the life that God created us for. And in that life, there's not going to be any sin. And in that life, there's not going to be any taint of the curse of the fall. And in that life, there's just going to be glorifying God forever in, in a joyous way. That's going to be good. And by the way, when I say glorifying God forever in a joyous way, I don't mean that we're sitting around having worship service for the rest of eternity. We're going to do stuff. I don't know what it's all going to be, but this isn't, you know, no clouds and harps here that I'm aware of. Now, in that eternal state, we're not going to be marrying and having children. That marrying and having children is for this life. Marriage is a beautiful thing given to humanity by God. Marriage is given to us in order to provide humans with companionship and help. It's not good for a man to be alone. Marriage is for procreation. God called Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And marriage is intended by God to be a foreshadowing of the beautiful relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. It's a picture of Christ and the church as Jesus lays down his life for the good of his people. And Paul says this is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. But in the eternal state, in the resurrection state, once Jesus has come back, all three of those things are no longer needed. See, when Jesus comes back and the curse of sin is removed and the world's perfect, we're not going to need to have one individual companion to keep us company. We're going to walk with God in fellowship and be in perfect fellowship with each other. In the eternal state, we're not going to produce children. That's not what God has intended for the life to come. And in the eternal state, we are not going to foreshadow the relationship of Christ and the church because the risen Lord Jesus is going to be right here with us in eternal glory. Why would you paint a picture of what's right in front of you? Now, let me stop a couple of you from making a mental mistake. I love being married. My wife, I mean, really loves being married. You can only imagine, right? She's a lucky girl. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sure many of you enjoy being married too, right? You married people. Whether you really need to say yes to this. You really do. <laughs> Marriage is a gift from God for this age. But here's the thing. In the life to come, now, we're still going to know each other in the life to come. You're not, going to be, you're not going to become some sort of, you know, Borg drone who doesn't know each person. We're going to be ourselves. Something that is you is still going to be you. You're going to care for your loved ones. You're going to love your loved ones in heaven. But 
to not be married in that age, that's not going to be a loss. God has something better for us than even our marriages in this life. Don't think God is taking a good thing from you. Instead, realize if you love being married now, you're going to love the eternal state infinitely more. I mean, angels don't marry. Angels don't have children. Angels are absolutely, eternally, perfectly, gloriously satisfied. We are going to be like them. And by the way, hear me. We are not going to become angels. If any of you talks about someone dying and says, now God has another angel, stop saying that. It's not true. We are never going to become angels because we're different than angels. Praise God. Now, at the same time, please don't think, I hear what you say, Pastor, but I really want to be married because I really, really love my spouse. Don't think for a moment God can't give you higher joy. Don't do that. It's a mistake. Now, Jesus, when he talks about the eternal state here, he's telling the Sadducees, just because you guys and all your brilliance cannot imagine the miracle of the resurrection, that doesn't limit the Lord. Their tiny minds are not big enough for the glorious power of God. That's what Jesus is saying right there. Then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus shows they don't, it's not only that they don't know God's power, they don't know scripture either. He even argues from the Pentateuch, from the first five books, just so they can't turn their noses up at Daniel 12. Jesus quotes Exodus 3, 6. God there says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, God is claiming right there in a fully active and present tense to still be the God of the patriarchs of Israel. And he did that. He said that even 400 years after those men had already died, Jesus says clearly, clearly, God is saying that those men are still with him, that their souls are in his care. He's still their God. So the Sadducees are simply biblically, theologically wrong if they say scripture does not point to living after death. God is the God of the living and God has a resurrection in store. And that, resurrection, that, that, that answer from Jesus sends the people away scratching their heads and muttering. And the crowds are like, whoa. I'm going to guess some people that heard this, man, they, they praised Jesus for his wisdom like we said in point number one. But many people don't get it. Speaking of points, by the way, how many do we have left? So I'm so glad somebody's paying attention. That brightens my day right there. Just the she note is four. There's four left. All right. Let's find four more points before we're finished, okay? They're going to be quick. Don't worry. But they're valuable. Point number four. Do not hide rebellion with hypotheticals. You got to spell hypothetical on your own. Do not hide rebellion with hypotheticals. What do I mean? There is no reason to think that the question that the Sadducees came to Jesus with was from a real situation. They were just looking for a question to try to make themselves look smart, a little trick question that would free them from respecting Jesus. And what they were doing there is a very common thing. It happens even today. So friends, let me say this to you. Don't do that. 
Don't use a hypothetical question, a hypothetical made-up situation, a little made-up gotcha question to try to argue that God hasn't done enough to prove himself to your satisfaction. The Bible is clear in Romans chapter 1 that God has proved himself to all humanity simply through his creation. Think about this for a second. If you're going to argue about the existence of God, can you do it without his creation? Go ahead, pick something God didn't make that you can argue about. Doesn't work. If you're coming up with a question that makes you not believe, you're doing it as a tool to hide a rebellious heart. So drop the hypotheticals, drop the objections. And here's the thing, be honest. Be honest enough to say, you know what? I'm just not going to follow God and God's word because I don't want to. That's more honest than a hypothetical situation. Or even better, repent, believe in Jesus, and be forgiven by God. Point five, trust scripture. Jesus, in his answer to the Sadducees, It's clear that Scripture is the authoritative, trustworthy revelation of God. And if Jesus can trust Scripture, don't you think we can too? Anybody think they're smarter than Jesus here? If you believe in the Lord Jesus, be sure that you have submitted yourself to the authority of the Word of God. You cannot know God. You cannot know God's will. You cannot know God's ways without being committed to his holy word. Trust the Bible. Put yourself in a place, in a position to regularly learn from and grow from the Bible. Let go of thinking you can figure out God and God's ways on your own. Trust scripture. Point six. Trust God's power to do what we cannot imagine. Trust God's power to do what we cannot imagine. See, the other Sadducee problem, remember? That's a problem with us in our modern age. We assume that if we can't understand how God might do something or why God might do something, we assume that thing must be impossible because if I can't figure it out, it must not be true. We do that, don't we? Which is funny because I cannot explain the aerodynamics as to what keeps an airplane up, but I get on them. Isn't that weird? We fail to understand the power of God. The Sadducees could not imagine the resurrection. Maybe you can't imagine creation. Maybe you can't imagine the flood. Maybe you can't imagine the parting of the Red Sea. Maybe you can't imagine the miracles or the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But dear friends, God is all-powerful. There is not a thing that is too hard for God to do. If God can speak the universe into existence, if God can fling out the stars, and if God can hang the planets, if God can shape the atoms, if God can hold together your body and not let it fly apart, God can do everything else Scripture tells us God has done. 
And if God can do everything that Scripture says he has done, we can know, we can trust that God is able to perfectly wrap up human history, bring the new heavens, bring the new earth, set up his eternal kingdom, and give his people joy forever. He is that powerful a God. And then seventh point, last point. Live for eternity. Live for eternity. The Sadducees rejected the notion of life after death. Jesus made it clear they were wrong. And if Jesus is telling you and me the truth, by the way, do you believe Jesus is a liar? No. Then we need to be prepared to live for eternity too. If you don't know Jesus and you don't know the forgiveness of God, I warn you, you've got to come to Jesus for grace before he comes back or before your life on this earth ends. You, just like me, are a sinner in need of the mercy of God. Turn away from your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus, and come to him for salvation. If you don't, your eternity is going to be under the right wrath of God. But if you are in Christ, you also have to be ready to live for eternity. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to raise the dead. Jesus is going to finish establishing the eternal kingdom of God. And that eternity that he brings is going to be glorious beyond anything you and I could ever imagine. All of our pains are going to be comforted. All of our tears are going to be dried. All of our souls are going to be fully satisfied in the presence of the Lord our God. And if we know that that's our future, if we know it, it has to change the way we live in hope and obedience today. Y'all, I'm glad to know Jesus is not tricked by the, the questions of the supposed scholars of his day. But I'm even more glad he's shown us that everybody who knows him has eternal hope. Because Jesus is alive, everyone who belongs to Jesus will live with Jesus in perfect joy forever and ever. And Christian friends, that is our Let's bow together and pray.